Hey, thanks for checking out the Toronto Today podcast for today, Thursday, January 13th. What other day would it be except today? But it's January 13th. Great to have you in. We got a lot of talk about education, schools, uh, the politics of it all, as opposed to just the personal for you as a parent or a student or someone even stuck in between. Um, it's it's such an important thing as we move forward towards Monday, and we cover it from all angles today. Glenn Healy's on the show as well. Uh, just a fantastic guest and brilliant broadcaster. Uh, broadcasting uh, needs more Glenn Healy's. But he's also run the NHLPA, currently running the NHL Alumni Association. And we talk about the NHL not going to the Olympics, the trepidation in going to China, period, for all our athletes, amateur or professional. That's on the pod as well. Please feel free to tell a friend, and you can tell them that we are here and providing what we're providing. It's helpful for us to know what you like and what you want more of on Toronto Today, which starts now. Let me start here. I'm really excited to start here with... Uh uh, schools. I, I, there's a clip, though, from yesterday as we were talking yesterday about the vaccine tax, the vax tax. And I got to thinking about it more during the course of the afternoon. I even, I think, dreamed about it during my afternoon nap. And uh, it was lengthy, uh, the dream and the nap. And uh, we were talking about how Quebec and Francois Legault was going to in, inflict, if you will, a tax on the unvaccinated, not if you come into the hospital, but just in general. Okay, so this is sort of a uh, incentive to go get vaccinated. Now, I've heard people say in Quebec, Greg, it's working. This carrot and stick philosophy is working. It did work here in Ontario, too. I'm not saying it didn't when all of a sudden you got you needed to go to the movies and you got to go to the restaurant and you can't go to a Blue Jays game without it. My recollection is the Blue Jays came back from Buffalo, where they came from Dunedin, what a ridiculous season. Again, don't get me mad about how little people in this city, the mayor, the the premier, advocated for them to come back. They could have come back a month earlier, won more games, and made the playoffs. The difference between them being in the playoffs and not, because they got they missed by one game after 162 games, was was a couple more home games. It really was. Don't don't give these people free tickets at Blue Jays games ever again. I say that mod moderately tongue-in-cheek, but I, at least for a while, uh, for the rest of Vladdy's career. Okay, if Vladdy goes and signs with the New York Yankees and becomes the arch-villain and comes back and, you know, bonks home runs left and right off uh, off the Jays, off Kevin Gossman, fine. Give him tickets, but don't give, don't don't you dare give Doug Ford, John Torrey, don't give any of these people blue, free Blue Jays tickets. And if you do, put him in Section 538. I've sat up there before. Where Canseco hit the home run, put him up there. That's what I want. So um, when all this happens, there's an incentive to get vaccinated, right? Exactly, there is. And Quebec's feeling that right now. So people are saying to me, they're stepping up. They don't like that. They don't like the you know attacks on, uh, to, you need a vaccine to go into uh, their version of the LCBO, which is not the LCBQ, but it's something different. They need that. And, uh, and they're, they're not going to, they're going to step up. They'll get the jab after all. Maybe so. But it led to more conversations about um, mandating the vaccine just to be, be. And I don't subscribe to that. I think there was a time for it to create consumer confidence and make people feel safe around other people. I'm not sure of the usefulness of it going forward. And I, do I wish our vaccination rates were even higher? 
than almost the best in the world? Yeah, I guess so. But I'm also a realist about who's spreading the virus, who's shedding the virus, who feels safe around me. People said to me yesterday, because I'm not for this in Quebec, um, not at all. And yet I do I do know that there's a need for private businesses to say we can operate the way we want. We're a restaurant. We'll do what we want. But I don't think the government can, you know, wave its magic wand and mandate these for all these private businesses. I think that that will be a mistake to do it very long. And I'm getting to what Kieran Moore said yesterday also that caused so much controversy and consternation. Jean-Yves Duclos said Friday, and I didn't like the look of this statement. Not the, the guy, it's fine. I mean, he, he looks a bit like a Bond villain, but that's all right. You can do that. <sighs> Jean-Yves Duclos is the Minister of Health and uh, and said, you know, the, the kind of hint was there about Canadians all being vaccinated, like you would need to do it. You would have to check a box for Revenue Canada. Do you need it to get your driver's Like, I know uh, Service Ontario is Service Ontario, but there are Service Canada issues to renew your passport, let's say. Um, And that's me floating that out there, not him. But what other way would they incentivize you to get a vaccine at a federal level? Here's what Duclos said yesterday, and it's kind of reassuring. No one, I believe, is thinking or certainly speaking of forcibly, physically vaccinating people in Canada. Um, thanks? I hope not. Can we hear that one more time, Gord? Can we can we get a sense? I mean, my goodness. Uh, it, whatever Darth Vader utilized to torture Princess Leia to talk about where the droids were and, and what the hell, where the Rebel Alliance was, I'm not even sure that kind of language was used. Here it is. No one, I believe, is thinking or certainly speaking of forcibly, physically vaccinating people in Canada. What a relief, because I was worried there for a minute that you were. You shouldn't have to say of things you're not thinking of doing or not actually doing out loud. You shouldn't have to come home uh, from you know work today to your wife or girlfriend and say, hey, um, I, I am not involved in any dead bodies that turn up in the next eight hours in downtown Toronto. You shouldn't need to say that. Don't even, if you're saying that, at some point it was thought about and discussed. You shouldn't need, like if somebody started a rumor about me, if there was all some kind of innuendo, I would do more than that. I'm like, no one's saying that I've, you know, chopped up bodies and put them in my freezer and decided I might eat them over the winter. I don't say that out loud. I don't need to. On another front, Dr. Kieran Moore said this uh, yesterday. It's nothing to do with what I just said, believe me. But the uh, chief medical officer of health for the province of Ontario was talking with Stephen Lecce about schools. And we're going to talk a chunk about schools this morning. Merritt Stiles is on the show. She's the NDP education critic around uh, 8 o'clock this morning. Um, So uh, it was important to, I think get a sense as to where the province was going. There were some things that were reassuring. There were some things that weren't. Let me defend to some extent Dr. Kieran Moore here, because I think this comment has been twisted a little bit, uh, misunderstood, and maybe rearranged by people looking to make what I call political capital from it. I don't find it terribly incendiary, but I'm also not for mandating 
vaccines for 5 to 11-year-olds. Here's what Dr. Kieran Moore said. Later, he issued a statement that clarified. I don't think he contradicted what he says here, but he clarified some things. Here's the clip. Because this is such a new rollout uh, and we want parents to feel confident in the decisions that they make and not feel coerced by any means, we want them to make a judgment based on the risks and the benefits of the vaccine. And in my opinion, the vaccine's uh, benefits far outweigh any risk. Um, uh, We do not anticipate putting uh, the um, verification process or making it applicable to the 5 to 11-year-olds. The government is, has not made any decision in that regard. Uh, uh, any independent business can make a decision separate from government. Okay, that's right. And, and he is correct about that last part. You run a business. You want people to be vaccinated. You're the Toronto Blue Jays. You uh, run a restaurant. You're Cineplex Odeon. You're, what's the other one, Landmark. Uh, where they have the kickback, uh, you know, loungy couchings to uh, watch a movie in. Fantastic. Okay. Absolutely. You can do that. There's there's not much you and me and everybody else can complain about if a private business decides to do that. Where we don't want it to go and where I think it's dangerous to go is government and uh, Mr. Duclos. Um, by the way, I'm getting text messages in about uh, what Bond movie he fit best fit in as a villain. Um, I don't know that we'll have time for that, but sure. Uh, 289-975-1640. 289-975-1640. I'm willing, I'm willing to listen on uh, on the living daylights. I am. Um, but, uh, yeah, look, that's. I don't think Kieran Moore said anything that was untoward or that should make parents frantic about that. He described it also as a new rollout, and that got misinterpreted, and I'd like to think not on purpose. Well, this is a really new vaccine, and when you say new vaccine, that makes parents think, oh, an experimental vaccine? No, not really. But what have I been saying for about four months now, okay? We can't mandate this with no real-world data. We can't push this on parents because and say you have to have Johnny's got to have his two shots to go to school because if the parents deem that it's too early or they choose not to vaccinate a healthy five or six year old then that's that and who suffers the kid the kid does you might make the case that the community suffers by not having all the kids in school you might make the case that the family suffers all that's true but the kid suffers the most And again, we'll get to this a little later on in the morning. If you're feeling concerned or have reasons that you think your kid should be at home, um, understandable. Then we've got to make that online option available for you. But the rest of us, don't, don't force the rest of us home if you're not ready to go back. It's not how this works. That's not how life has always worked for decades and centuries. The most the most concerned, I almost said scared, the most concerned person on our block doesn't get to dictate policy. And it's my right as a taxpayer to send my kid to school if they're open. It's your right to decide I want another option right now in these circumstances. I'm keeping my kid home. Get it? I got it. I understand. I didn't think what Dr. Kieran Moore said was uh, be beyond reproach, but I do understand why some parents who are already on the fence might have been confused by it. Here's his, cl- to be fair to Dr. Moore, I always am. Here's his clarification later. Uh, he did document that uh, he, he, the press conference comment was uh, the province needs, quote, a greater experience with it before we'd ever mandate it. That part is true. 
John Tory, Eileen DeVilla, Stephen Del Duca all wanted this now. We had no real-world data. We had, we, in my uh, research, and I'm backing myself on this, there was no emergency use approval yet for the Pfizer pediatric drug in the United States. And you got people holding a press conference saying, we have to mandate this. Parents must do this. You must, you must, you must. You can't tell parents to do that for a five, six, seven-year-old. That doesn't work. That's not who we are. That's not who we want to be. So um, the statement, though, by uh, by Dr. Kieran Moore did reiterate his belief in the efficacy, the safety of the vaccine. But I didn't think he was questioning whether there was enough data for the vaccine to know that it's doing what it's supposed to do. I think he was making the point that it's a tough ask for parents to decide that um, uh, that to approve of a mandate. I didn't think it was as controversial as some did, but the tongue can trip yourself up sometimes. I'm the first to admit that. And uh, and some confusion could be sowed. So it's probably the right thing to put that statement out. All right. So four days away, Thursday now, Monday school back in session. Here's what I'd advise quickly. Merritt Styles in just a minute or two, uh, NDP education critic. Um, but what I would advise Make some calls, get word of mouth, get good info here, find out what your board's doing. My kids' board's the DDSB. They've documented that they've, uh, th- you know, they've got their shipments of ventilators. I've heard from teachers who have their N95s. They don't know if they've got two weeks worth or three weeks worth. But we've got to start somewhere. Um, and as I just said with Bruce Arthur, I don't like a lot of how things were framed yesterday. We needed a, a happy medium between hey, we won't tell you until there's 30% absenteeism and we're closing schools for two positive cases when there's when there's going to be Omicron everywhere. I wanted that reframe. I got that as a parent, but there's a lot that's, that's missing here. Quickly, we had OSSTF president on Karen Littlewood yesterday, and I wanted to give you some insight into her thoughts on this. She wants the community standards and what's uh, sort of what we're restricted by uh, right now to stay the same, at least for a couple weeks. That lets us judge schools on an individual basis. We don't have a lot of conflicting scenarios here. This is what she said. When we're talking about community restrictions, um, we probably need to be keeping those in place if we're going to be opening mm-hmm. schools. We've heard it over and over again. Schools should be the last to close and the first to open. Restaurants are closed right now. Please, please, please don't open the restaurants. Yeah, I agree with that. When we're going back into the schools. Keep the capacity limits low in the malls, in, in Costco, in you know, Walmart, all of those places. All true. Now, here's where I differ with Karen Littlewood, and I said so in August. Uh, vaccination status of teachers. I don't need names. I sure don't need addresses and phone numbers, but I think parents had a right to know if their teachers were vaccinated. It's the one thing I dig in on the union for. They didn't push enough to get their membership vaccinated. That was deemed uh, some kind of private health decision until around mid-August, and then, and then it became a, it went from a crawl to a sprint. Here's how she referenced that. Right now, fully vaccinated is two shots. The definition hasn't changed. We need people to have their third shot. There is no data on that. School boards don't have it. We can ask our members, but we're not going to get 100% of that information either. So, hello, the government perhaps maybe needs to be asking for that information so Mm -hmm. parents will have access to information. They do have a right to know. You're right. Okay, but then ask your members. That's that's the point of being in a union and paying dues. I'm an employee of Chorus Entertainment. They ask me if I'm vaccinated. 
I tell them. That seems pretty simple stuff to me. And again, I, I think we fell way, way short. As much as we want to call it a win that schools went as they did in September, October, November, even with some safeguards not being put in place by the province, uh, I think parents had a right to know whether an unvaccinated teacher was teaching their kid in person or not. I want to welcome on NDP education critic Merritt Stiles. It is great to have you on. I always enjoy our conversations. I Some days I think you've got a difficult job. Uh, yesterday with some of what I saw, I think you have an easy one to poke some holes. What made you most upset? What were what were the most obvious, uh, you know, failings in terms of the plan that you witnessed? Well, I think you you really nailed it there. Uh, you know, it's this piece about the thirty percent, like having to know, waiting until thirty percent of staff and students are off. That doesn't necessarily mean COVID either. Mm-hmm. Who knows? Uh, before before families can be notified and and you know to be honest what i don't what i don't agree with in that is that and i said this yesterday it's like it shouldn't be actually more you know easier to find out that there's a lice outbreak in your kids class than than covid right so um they're really relying a lot on parents on families to to process a lot of information to take a lot of responsibility and i gotta say as a parent and i talk to a lot of families out there with littler kids than mine who are already having a really hard time navigating all this and I don't think this is going to help at all. I think it makes it more confusing. Um, it keeps people in the dark a little bit too long, for sure. And I also think our system, like once you get to those kinds of numbers of people being out of work or not, you know, because they're sick or kids not being at school, the, the, the school's kind of falling apart at that point anyways. So I'm really concerned about that. Um, and I'm also concerned about the testing. I mean, the government mm-hmm. finally caved and said they're going to send two, I guess kids are going to get elementary students are going to get two testing testing not kits but two tests uh hopefully next week uh i'm glad they're getting tests but that's that's going to cover us for about a week for most families i suspect right once kids are back in school so so we need that moving a lot faster and i know some of that is being supply but a lot of it is also i think people are looking around and going what were you doing for the last month now why wasn't that decision made earlier yeah, I think in early December, much, much, much more could have been done, maybe even prior to that. Uh, we weren't exactly sailing along, and, I, and I've said this before. Yeah. I think teachers, right from the get-go, we can go back to the start of this crisis and this pandemic and say, you know, they should have been allowed to wear, should have had the choice to wear masks that made them more confident, made them more safe. Yeah. I, I, I do think some of it falls on the advocacy of, of boards and unions, but for the most part, um, I, I, I look and I go, Everything you said, I agree with, and, and there's got to be a principle of understanding that uh, that we need to test to stay has worked so well in so many U.S. states, Democrat and Republican states, where you've got to bring proof of a negative PCR test, not a rapid test back if you want to come back. Yeah, that's right. And I think, you know, one of the things that's been really problematic in the last few, you know, well, now it's been, I was counting, it's now 672 days since first closed schools back in March 2020. And obviously, like, a lot has changed. A lot has happened. But in, one of the things that we've not done terribly well generally is, is provide, like, clear information to families. And so the test to stay thing, it was complicated for a lot of – it can be complicated, but once people know what's expected, we, we get it done. Like, we, we know. But you got to have clear information. And I don't think parents got that yesterday, which is what's really concerning me because I think – a lot of people are going to be feeling hesitant about sending their kids back in this situation um, already. And we need people to feel confident. We need them to know that their kids are going to be safe, that their communities are going to be safe. And, and because we do know at the end of the day that in-person learning is for sure 
so much better for our kids and our communities. But we people need to know that those protections are in place and that the government has a system that's going to work and not just work, but actually stay, you know, ensure that our schools stay open. If we keep locking down and reopening, uh, that's just worse for everyone. Yeah, it's terrible. Uh, NDP education critic Merritt Styles, our guest on Toronto today. Uh, yeah, to, to you work, make tests to stay work, someone has to keep track of which students have been designated contacts of that first infection. Uh, now, I think we can test now, but I don't think we can trace this virus. I want the resources there for masks and filters and, and whatnot. It's not an endless supply of resources. We should be throwing everything and the kitchen sink at it to keep schools open. But I, Merritt, I, I worry tracing this virus with it everywhere is virtually impossible we just have to not let kids come back if they're showing symptoms or if they are still testing positive we can't have that yeah that's right and there was a lot of um there were a lot of questions that people have coming out of the announcement yesterday myself included and a lot of reporters and even yesterday throughout the day the government kept changing it up right so they kept changing well actually now we're you're going to know if your classroom has a couple more people but we won't tell you if it's like look it's really confusing, and you're right. It's never going to be perfect. I, I, I'm not. I'm not pretending it is, but but I do think that again, we're laying a lot on families to make decisions, and for a lot of families, there is not going to be much choice. Um, you know, we already know that families had to kind of really figure out before before in the in the earlier stages of this. Okay, my kid's got a runny nose. That could be any million things, but I've got to make that responsible decision. So. Right now, though, we're, we're confusing them. We're making it more difficult to make that decision. It should be very simple. And if we have the testing, at least we can inform ourselves, keep ourselves properly informed. We know what we're dealing with and be responsible um, members of our community, right? And I think that's all what, that everybody really wants. And, and I think it's only fair, too. And, you know, speaking about the teachers, I mm-hmm. mean, I, you know, that is their workplace, right? And and so I do feel that, you know, when the teachers are in the classroom, like I know what's going to happen is, and you look at it in every workplace, uh, we're looking at, you know, probably 30 to 60, more like 60 probably percent uh, folks getting sick at some point. And, and that may be just where we're at, but I can tell you uh, some of those people will get very sick. Some of those people will make other people sick. And also it's going to, it's going to be really hard to keep our schools open when you're looking at those numbers. So all of this is, super important to keeping our schools safely open, which, as you said, it has to be our priority. Now, is that estimate, if you go to 60 percent, you're talking about people that would test positive, people that might have um, a a cold. What I'm hearing, and and I hear this from the doctors, and you probably do too, boosted people and boosted people that that don't have multiple comorbidities aren't showing up in hospitals. They're sure not showing up in, in ICU beds. But to your point, they're sick enough that they can't work that day. Is that what you're saying? Right, exactly. And when okay. I talk to organizations in my community, like our health centers or, you know, the community, like everybody is basically, this is the number they're going with. They're planning for those kinds of uh, human resource staff shortages through this, right? Because it's, mm-hmm. it's somewhat inevitable. We are hitting this. Um, now, is it, is, it, is it inevitable? Maybe not. We probably could, we probably could do better. Uh, hopefully we can. Uh, but if, you're, if you see everybody's planning for that, I think it's a real thing. And, and it, it is what is probably one of the greatest threats right now is actually just keeping everything going. And we're not going to be able to keep everything going if people are sick. Um, and absolutely, uh, you know, you don't want to be at sick. When, you don't want to be at work when you're sick. And you don't want to make other people sick. And that's actually like a good principle generally anyway, <laughs> but especially right now. And so I think that's what's going to happen. I'm, I'm really concerned that, again, we're going to have people, uh, cl- schools closing and opening and closing and opening again. Um, the government's approach to this in the last, uh, certainly the last few months, but 
you know, maybe I would say throughout, but has been a little less than ideal. <laughs> they they mm-hmm. haven't really planned ahead. And I don't understand why, because I got to say, like, we've all known, we, we've known what needed to happen pretty early on in all this. And like you said, masks, proper masks for the teachers seems like like the minimum we should be providing. So that getting the, getting the tests out more broadly, we need some guarantees that they're going to continue to be there. Um, and that, that it's not going to be just be like two tests for the term. Like that's not going to cut it. It's, it's not going to cut it. Gonna cut it. Yeah. Um, I got one more and it's, I guess it's geared towards the, the high school student. I'm a little surprised by boards continuing to move towards a semester. Of course, that'd be better. Of course, that'd be more ideal. But the quadmester, and I'd say this about the 2021 school year, um, had, had a better chance to work. The, the more you're limiting contact with cohorts, the better a chance this has uh, not to spread as transmissible as it is. I'm a little surprised there isn't more uh, pushing in that direction for all the high schools across our province to be quadmestered. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I'm a little surprised too. Um, I, I understand, you know, that from a, from their perspective it, and and also for kids generally, they haven't preferred that model, but um, and that I know a lot of work goes into kind of shifting and pivoting back and forth. But I do think this is one of those times where, you know, if we've seen anything over the last month, even the last 24 hours, it's that uh, the government shifts their planning uh, based on people's outrage. You know, I think it's mostly planning by polling. And I, I don't like that. I don't agree with it. But I do think that if people are, are feeling like that's a critical um, issue uh, to safety. They need to let their boards and they need to let the government know it. Uh, because you're right, things are changing a lot. There's, uh, we, we are not in, I mean, I think we could have seen where we were headed. Certainly we were being told this is where things were probably going to head uh, back in the fall. Um, but, you know, it is, it is a lot of work. And I mean, it, I have to say, like, boards have really generally stepped up pretty well. They have because there is an extraordinary amount of planning involved, and a lot of the boards yeah. that we're talking about are massive. So it's it's a big deal to shift these things, but they've done it before, and they may have to do it again. Thank you very much for your advocacy, for your time this morning, Merritt. I appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks so much, Greg. You got it. Merritt Stiles, NDP education critic. Look, yeah, again, I'm hearing from more teachers that have gotten a supply of masks. They feel comfortable. There's being safe. There's feeling safe. I've said that all week. I got empathy. I got understanding. Uh, if if I hear from a teacher that doesn't have what they need in their classroom, uh, I, I want to hear about it because I think that needs people who didn't provide what they need to get provided with need to be put on blast. I want to give this a shot, though. This is better, better than doing what we've been doing this week and what we did last week. It's better. And guess what? There's egg all over the face of the Ford government if it crashes and burns. And we go back to online again. Are you joking? You know what kind of political nightmare, if everything is indeed politicized, you know what kind of nightmare that is five months from now. That's that's pretty easy finger pointing to say this didn't work and here's why. Uh, who is using a pseudonym, but she is an Ontario school teacher, wants to be back in the classroom. She's become a big viral hit on social media because she says kids should be in school no matter what. I'm not worried to go in there. And I think she's empowered a lot of teachers to say that they feel the same. This is about our kids and our education. We have to get this right. And Betty joins me once again on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. It's great to have you on. I was saying earlier to other guests, we got to be brave here. We got to we got to yell and scream when things aren't right. If the province doesn't give you uh, teachers the safeguards and the equipment you need to be safe, not necessarily feel safe, we got to say so. But but I'm glad you're going back into the classroom. 
No, I agree with you. I think with every closure, um, this burden is becoming uh, heavier and heavier on families. And, you know, it's that's it, something we don't spend a lot of time looking at or a lot of time talking about. But the 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 heaviness for parents to have to carry your child through this. And I've spent the majority of, you know, the last four school days just speaking with parents, uh, trying to see, you know, what can I do to assist them and assist their child? And they are finding it difficult because their child isn't really sharing with them how they feel about it. Mm -hmm. And these parents are just, they're out of gas. Like they, they, and as a parent myself, I feel the same. It's hard to, to be hopeful and, you know, give your, your child a safe place to fall when you yourself are, are barely holding on. So I think that uh, the, the family unit as a whole is suffering right now. And school is such an important part of, of a village really for, for parents. Uh, my, my kids' teachers are a part of my village yeah. and they help me, you know, help my children navigate life. So to have them removed from that completely is just gut wrenching as a parent. So school is, is so important to the health of the family unit. Betty is our guest on Global News Radio 640 Toronto on Toronto Today uh, with Greg Brady. I I think there's probably three uh, buckets that we could put in uh, the asks for teachers right now. I I absolutely think they should wear the masks they want to wear. I think they should have N95s provided for them if that's the case. Their uh, spot in line got accelerated to go get boosted. Hopefully many have. Um, Then there's there's some debatable ones I think we could get into. But then there's ones that I, I just think... And we might have talked about this last time. I just think these are long, longer term goals. These are probably, to be honest, post June election goals. Um, sick pay for parents, smaller class sizes. I recognize mm-hmm. these are important. I recognize they're they're critical for kids to learn. But we're in, you know, this is to me again aliens invading the planet, and you better take cover and find a way to fight back immediately. I think these are longer term issues. Do you think I have that right? I, I do think you have that right. My one of my biggest concerns is, you know, we're putting these these small goals that we would like to achieve as almost bargaining chips for opening schools. And and I will be the first to tell you that if I have a smaller class size, yes, I can do more with those mm-hmm. students. I can, you know, I can help my students more. I can be more present and I can pick up on the, you know, the little things that maybe I would miss if I had a class of 35 or 40. But right now, what these kids need. Is, is, is open schools. And like you said, there's, you know, there's the um, preference for booster shots and uh, the optional masks if, if they so wish to have them. Each of us is in a position of making our own risk assessments right now of what we need to feel safe. But none of that should come at the cost of our children having a right to an in-person education because with every day that, you know, this is going on and these, these kids are out of school, we're seeing increase in, in disengagement and chronic attendance problems and uh, decreased academic achievement and credit attainment as well. And also their mental health is suffering. And not only that, we, we don't know the homes these kids are coming from. Um, you know, food insecurities have have increased. The mm-hmm. schools are more than just a place of of learning. They're they're almost like a hub for these kids to come and get all of the necessities of life. So when you shut those doors, you're shutting our vulnerable youth out of of so many things that they need. I don't doubt the start next week will will have some chaos to it and some disorder. I, I think mm-hmm. most teachers, parents. 
uh, are expecting that. I think there's going to be kid absences. I think there's going to be teacher absences. Can we, Mm -hmm. but, but I'm, I'm, I'm for it. People have, have looked at the New York example of them opening. Well, you know, there were some teachers, this is, to me, it's like inertia. It's almost like exercise or being social. Like once you, once you plop down on your couch and you put your feet up, you're going to stay there a while. If you're constantly moving and buzzing, we got to give this a go next week and, and Mm -hmm. have some element of good faith besides all the tension. It's going to be messy and a bit disorganized and whatnot. But if we don't like, that's how any start's going to be, whether we make it in mid January or the start of March. I I agree. And I think, um, you know, I, I, I think we all need to enter into this knowing that we are going to have to sacrifice a bit more than what we maybe have in previous years. Uh, but we've done this before. We've we've yeah. opened schools with with question marks, right? And we just have to get over that first hurdle of making it through that first week. And we have to be willing to to look at these kids and say, I know what you need right now. And if that means I lose, you know, a time off my prep or um, a student is staying home because they don't feel comfortable coming in and I have to accommodate them the first week, I need to do that because that's what these kids need right now. And I think that, you know, we all are on different areas of the spectrum when it comes to worry. But when it all comes down to it, we just got to come back to what do these kids need and what can I do to help them? And if we just focus on that and put aside our anger and our fear, we could really get this right. And and they need us to get this right. They do. They do. Big time. Uh, Betty's joining us on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. A few more minutes with her. If uh, barring a teacher that is, um, I guess, notably older, um, somebody with, with, you know, sort of, sort of significant health issues or health concerns. We have to listen to those people and accommodate. There's, there's a responsibility for any employer to do that for an employee. But, but for the most of the teachers, you know, and the ones I know, this is what they say to me. They say, Greg, if, if I'm boosted and I have my choice of mask, I'm, I'm not worried for my own health. I, I don't know. And and they almost go to the point where they're like, I I don't care who else is around me and what they're wearing and what they're doing. I know how well protected I am based on the Mm -hmm. data. I wish that message was out there more, but, but I think that's growing a bit stronger in the day as the days go by. Yeah, the message is definitely getting out there that um, this virus requires us at this point to, again, do our own personal risk assessment. What do you need to feel safe? And, you know, maybe it's time we have some discussions, or at least I would like to see this happen. The difference between feeling safe and what is actually safe, because we have data we have two years under our belt of this. We have more tools that we, we we can use to protect ourselves. So I would really like to see us have discussions about, you know, what is the data showing? Because at some point, we have to look at how can we move forward? And I feel like we're stuck in this constant cycle of, of fear. So we could turn to some doctors who, you know, really truly have studied these, these aspects of the virus. And I'm, you know, I'm not an expert. I can't speak to it. I know we're, we're just going to start to walk again before we can run. So things clearly um, like extracurriculars and field trips and, and uh, even a proper lunch in the cafeteria seems a way off. It may not be like when you watch the tides in, in other countries and you watch the significant decline after Mm -hmm. a a meteoric rise of, of cases. And yes, of course, an increase of hospitalizations and, uh, and intensive care beds. I'm still holding out some hope for what April, May, and June can be. Let's end on that note. How do you feel about the potential for the last three months when we can all breathe a little easier, way more people are vaccinated, more kids are double vaccinated, and and we're we're back outside again. 
Right. I feel like when you look at this from, you know, an objective perspective, you can see that we we have moved forward. We have gotten to a place where I really do feel like come the spring, we're going to see some major changes. And, and again, that's exactly what our kids need. They need a little hope in their life. And we have been planning for graduation. We have been planning for prom. We have been having sports teams all year. So I would like to see a return to those things because it's those things that help these kids uh, be healthy, but also feel well. And that's really important that they have this sense of normalcy coming back and that they can see that all of the work that we've put in to getting to today, you know, has paid off in some sense that our lives can now return to a place of stability for them. And that's exactly what they're, they're craving right now is this, mm. is this need to, to be a kid again. You inspired a lot of teachers by coming on last week. Uh, and I don't know whether any, you know, the, the advocacy pushing some people. I, I did my share of yelling and screaming. It raises my blood pressure. I don't like that. But <laughs> but uh, but it's worth it. I'll, I'll take uh, I'll take counting to 10 or even 20 or 30 the way this uh, last week and a half has gone once in a while. If it gets our kids back where they need to be right. and people like you doing what you do best. Thank you very much for coming on with us again. And uh, I wish you luck next Monday. Thank you for having me. Okay, there's some U.S. doctors I reference from time to time. Dr. Scott Godlieb is one. Dr. Ashish K. Someday we'll find out what the K stands for. Jaw, as well from Brown University. Brown can't be that. It can't be that hard to be on the medical board of Brown University. I mean, what really do you need to know? But this is a smart guy, and I want to read you a tweet that he wrote, and I will do that after we talk to our next guest, Dr. Suman Chakrabarty um, from uh, Trillium Health, um, infectious disease specialist. Uh, so much has been made of the booster. We've talked about the booster for teachers heading into classrooms. There's debate about it for kids right now. But clearly, uh, a lot of Ontarians have gotten that third shot in the last four to five weeks, and that's a good thing. Let me know where you stand right now on the efficacy of that third shot. And I would say that the booster especially provides protection for that group that's about 60 years of age or older, and of course, the immune compromise. And the reason I say that is that it's not so much actually in this population of booster, that third shot is probably part of their primary series that kind of gets the immune system revving to get that baseline response to the virus. Uh, we have some evidence actually coming out of on, right here in Ontario, uh, in Denmark, uh, in England as well, that people that have two doses, it's actually uh, provides remarkable amount of protection against a severe disease that is. But we are seeing multiple areas also showing that the vaccination is not really providing any protection or very little protection against mild disease. And we're kind of seeing that in the population. I'm sure you have tons of friends who had a cold recently. And, you know, a lot of that's Omicron. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's nice. Not a single one has gone to the hospital, but that's in my age demo. So that's people in their 30s and 40s. They were either boosted or double vaccinated. And, and that raises it's such an interesting debate, I think, for parents of, of teenagers. I've talked to a lot of parents of healthy, robust kids, especially boys, and they're not they're not thrilled to uh, consider a third shot for their teenage uh, teenage son right now. And I get it. I you know, I, I don't want that to be man. I still want that to be my choice at the end of the day, but I don't I don't know where that goes for sports. You, you've seen a lot of the fights and, and battles in the United States uh, where, you know, they're they're saying you need to be boosted to be fully vaccinated to go to college. You need to be boosted to be fully vaccinated to play basketball or soccer outside next spring. And that's 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 a tough bridge to cross for some parents right now. 
I agree. And and I think that uh, one thing I do want to tell people who are thinking about this is that that's okay, because, you know, I get it that, uh, you know, we want everybody to be fully vaccinated. But, you know, the idea of boosting a 17 year old where, you know, their risk of severe disease is so small to begin with, that, you know, you could, you're starting to now get small risks that can accumulate. And we certainly have seen, especially in a recently uh, amended nature paper, uh, that showed there was a significant amount of uh, myocarditis in individuals, mm-hmm. especially men less than the age of 40. All I'm saying is, listen, I'm the most pro-vaccine person out there, mm-hmm. but I want the vaccine to be given to the point that it works. But we have to remember it's a medical intervention and there can be too much of a good thing. So let's give the a vaccine with evidence to where it's going to help the most. And right now, I think that the third dose, the booster, is especially for long-term care, people over the age of about 50 to 60, and people with profound immune suppression. Dr. Suman Chakrabarty is our guest on Toronto Today with Greg Brady on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Um, teachers going back next week, there's been a lot of talk, obviously, about the, the change in masks and moving to N95s. And it looks, by all accounts, it, it's certainly worthy of calling out if it doesn't uh, materialize, that teachers will have N95 masks provided for them um, in, in in large quantities. And that's great. They probably should have been given the choice to wear those, at least the choice uh, in the first place uh, coming into this fall, if not last spring of 2021. So saying all that to me, and this is what I'm hearing from teachers, um, when they're fully boosted wearing an N95, I, they, they feel safe. I wouldn't, wouldn't you feel safe being three shots and an N95 mask in a classroom? Uh, actually, uh, I'd feel safe with uh, two shots and my surgical mask. And listen, I've been seeing COVID since the very beginning, but I get it. Like, you know, we have teachers who are in the classroom with kids uh, for, you know, several hours in the day. And I understand the trepidation. That, that's it. I agree. Like t- talking to a lot of teachers that uh, I know that are friends, colleagues, acquaintances, uh, they, they just want to get back into class and and teach. And listen, my, my daughter's in junior kindergarten and mm-hmm. the, the teachers are such an important part of her life. They were part of my life as well. And I think this is is great to see them going back in person. I understand the trepidation, but I think the good thing is, look, there is vaccination on the ground. Omicron, thankfully, for people who are vaccinated is is, uh, mild, like a cold. And finally, look, the the wave is going to crest and crash very soon. So once you start to get a lot less uh, circulating COVID in the community, the risk drops with that. And I think this will be our last disruptive wave. What do you say to people anecdotally who are of the mind that um, to, to, you know, to be blunt, we're all going to get this or we've all had it or are going to get this. Um, you know, I, I don't think anyone should be rushing out and having uh, Omicron parties. I don't think that. But at the same time, I, I'm hearing from couples that say, well, if my wife got it, I would just accept it. I'm not going to I'm past the days. I think we're past the days where we're going to send a spouse or God forbid, a kid, a nine year old down to the basement to live by themselves for 10 days. I feel like that, especially in a fully vaccinated household, what are you hearing anecdotally just from people, just just the word almost on the street from a non-medical perspective, people that don't know what you know, what do you say to them? Well, listen, I, I think the thing with um, uh, this is this is a respiratory virus. And I've mentioned this many times. You've probably read my tweets that mm-hmm. uh, a respiratory's job is to infect you. Its existence is to infect you. And I think that we've been uh, moralizing a lot of that over the past uh, two years. But now we have uh, lots of vaccination on the ground. We have a milder variant. For the most part, I'm talking about for healthy people that are vaccinated. So we have a situation where this is essentially like a uh, mild viral infection for the majority of people in the community. So I think 
that a lot of people are like, oh, I just had COVID, but that was really mild. What's going on? And I think it's because they've been living with fear about this being something severe for everybody over the past two years. So I think that's been a bit of a pleasant surprise. I get it. Not everybody's there yet. Uh, This Mm -hmm. has been, it's going to require a bit of recalibration, but the point is I think that we're going in a good direction for society as a whole and really getting to that post pandemic period where we don't have to be worrying about this uh, every second of the day. Yeah. Um, we had uh, Dr. Chaglon a few days ago, and I know uh, you've advocated, well, two things you've been strong, uh, both a- advocates for of, of all the people that we put on uh, our show. And we're so grateful that you guys come on. It's been vaccine equity worldwide. That's for sure. That's something we're really struggling with. And we've got to turn up the, you know, turn up the water pressure on, uh, on not just Canada, but a lot of the other G7, G20, first world nations to do that. The second thing, though, is antivirals. And he and I talked a lot about that the other day. In that uh, Health Canada's got to got to step up, step into the batter's box here. Uh, they're going to be available much sooner in the United States. They're already available in the United Kingdom, and and this for a simple prescription or uh, or over the counter uh, medication to help deal with uh, with potentially keeping people out of it. You, you want to keep uh, people out of hospital. You'd make these antivirals available soon. What's been the struggle, and how frustrating is it knowing how well, especially the Pfizer one compared to the Merck one? Um, these are helping people. They're helping. They're helping people stay out of danger. Definitely, and I, I think that this is certainly another tool in the box. I will say one thing: I get the the rush to want to get uh, to get these drugs, uh, you know, right in our hands to use. I will say one thing though: I have to respect Health Canada for really taking their time in vetting the data. I think there has been a lot of examples around the world where things I think were rushed. Understandably, we are really, really anxious to get vaccines, to get different types of treatments, but they've been fairly have a fairly good track record of vetting these properly. But I, that said, I agree with you. I want to get these sooner rather than later. And like I said, is that going forward, look, we're not going to be testing every you know 20-year-old in the community that has a runny nose, but we do want to be able to pick up those people that say a 60-year-old uh, that has uh, you know bad diabetes or a renal transplant or something like that, where we can give them something that could potentially prevent them from getting to hospital and very simply. And I think that uh, uh, certainly this is, could, this is something we want to get uh, as another tool going forward as uh, COVID is not going to be a pandemic thing for us, but it still will be a virus that circulates and we want to have some uh, 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 weapons against it. Yeah, that's absolutely sensible and fair. A- as you go, I know, you know, uh, young family, you've got, you've got a young addition to your family. So you're up all night anyway, but you'll be up all night next week watching the tennis from Melbourne. That's not my question. Someday, will you watch the 10 episode Netflix special on Novak Djokovic's last couple of weeks? I don't know who's going to play him, but I know that's going to be a great, that's going to maybe Amazon will outbid Netflix for it, but I know you'll be watching. I will be. Now, as you know, I'm a huge Nadal fan, uh, but uh, that was a tough situation. I, I understand the frustration with him, but uh, let's see. Go Rafa. <laughs> uh, all right. Oh, well, lots of 2 a.m. Uh, starts for Rafa. Maybe maybe he'll give you some seven in the morning starts, which is like, I don't know, 11 a.m. Uh, Melbourne time uh, the next day, just just to make that day a little bit easier. For me, the day's you. half over by that time. Anyway, I'm, I'm up at four so right now, so it's good. It's very true. Yeah, something to wind down with after doing uh, <laughs> exactly. what you do. Thank you so much for being there for our listeners, for me as well. I never, ever, ever take your time for granted. Uh, thanks very much for coming on. Good to be here. Take care. I'm very pleased to have on uh, president of the NHL Alumni Association. They've got a new partnership as well that we're going to get to a little later on and a Stanley Cup champion and a phenomenal, phenomenal broadcaster. He's done so many Stanley Cup finals, Olympics as well, and we'll talk about Olympics. He is Glenn Healy. It's great to have you on uh, Toronto Today. Glenn, I always am a fan of yours. Thanks for making the time for us. 
Well, it was a great introduction, so uh, thank you very much for that. I'm glad I was on the show, and show's over because I can't That's go it. any better. Than no, 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 no. It's only it's, you. The oh. audience knows it's only oh, okay. uh, downhill. We have to keep going now. Okay, okay. Well, let's put it in the ditch then. That's. I could have mentioned. Uh, by the way, I, I lived in Michigan ten years. You went to Western Michigan University in Kalamazoo. Who was your hockey rival? Like in football, it's Eastern. Eastern and Western hate each other, but Eastern doesn't have much of a hockey team. Who was Western Michigan's biggest rival when you're playing in the NCAA? Not much of a hockey team. That that is an understatement. <laughs> I had two great friends at Western Michigan that played on the football team. Uh, they went up to Eastern Michigan before their big football game and painted a W on the center of the field. Uh, got arrested for it. That's uh, how it's done. Like most yeah. of my friends at Western Michigan, yeah. they they uh, Their time, this is how they had to do time. They had to clean the stadium at Eastern Michigan uh, the Monday after the big football game. It, it took them four and a half days to clean the stadium. One, it's row. too much. It's too much time to spend in Ypsilanti. Row by row, yes. But uh, Michigan State was always our big rival. They were a good team. Uh, Bowling Green was an NCAA champion when I uh, was at Western. You know, when you look at Michigan University, who's now a powerhouse, uh, they were a club at the time before Red Berenson took over. Was offering maybe eleven scholarships to players, so mm. weren't drawing ac- absolutely anybody but friends and family of players that were any good. <laughs> and uh, so, as a result. Uh, yeah, you know, great league, great way to go for anyone that's listening to have kids to go away to get a free education. I managed to get a degree in marketing and a degree in finance, and that really set me up for my entire NHL career because I didn't have to make the NHL. It wasn't a yeah. must. If I didn't make it, I learned so I could earn, and so it took a lot of that pressure off. But four great years there, great memories, and uh, you know, I, I still look back and I still go to Western Michigan. Still go to the Hall of Fame inductions uh, and, you know, still hope one day that they'll win a championship. Uh, that reminds you of any place else? That, no, 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 nowhere no, else you played, no. really. Toronto, not yeah, not terribly. It. It's been a bad morning already. That's so. right. Um, it's right. You lose to the Coyotes last night. Uh, it feels well, that, that way. It was a Leaf game because there's no fans. Also oh, that. Well, I, they were Arizona. Oh, that's why it was on that's later. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I apologize for the detail. Well, that that's where that's where it's a good place to go because you think about parents like you watch you, you sit at home and we all watch the World Juniors get canceled. We watch uh, junior hockey not have a Memorial Cup the last two years. I, I know there are people you know we've all tried to protect the most vulnerable of our society, but when we're watching the finite time, Glenn, you get to be a kid, a teenager, even an elite athlete. It is it is honestly. I think about it every day. It's the most heartbreaking thing imaginable for some of these young players who worked from age four or five to get where they are now, and they're just they're they're, they're stunted by their uh, by all the, all that's happening right now. Yeah, I really wish you hadn't gone to Wuhan and brought that back to this country because we'd be safer now. But you did, and that's yeah. okay. I won't hold it against you. But you know, there's a couple. Well, first off, I went to Pickering High School. So if you think I had any medical background in any of this stuff. Other than to sit there in 2020, right before our pipe band was about to go on its St. Paddy's Day tour, finding out it was canceled and having one of the most disheartening days of 2020 for me, uh, that was the start of it. There were 12 cases in Ontario, and, uh, and that was it. And the season got canceled, and I understand why. And, you know, I think, you know, brighter days are ahead. Uh, the, the, the light is there at the end of the tunnel. We've done what we can to do vaccinations. It's, it is heartbreaking for our kids. A couple things, the rules in our house. One, dinner time, we're not discussing it. Because for yeah. whatever reason, I don't know when my kids went be- to become vaccine experts and experts in what's in vaccine and experts about all things vaccine, but they are. 
Uh, I got rid of Google on the computer because of that fact, but we we deny to talk about it at dinner because it is such a polarizing and debateful topic. I, my big question is when this is over and we get back and kids get back playing and arenas are full, what the hell are you guys going to talk about? CNN, that's just no going to be like a complete medical infomercial, I think. Uh, but it, it has been debate and fodder for too long, and I just hope that uh, we see a finish line, and I think we're there. Glenn Healy is our guest on Toronto Today on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. When when you hear that Provorov comment, um, I, I, give him, I give him credit. If we're not going to have honest conversations, people are going to say how they feel, and he'll get roasted for it, but whatever. He's allowed to have that opinion, is he not? Absolutely. Yeah, but tr- trust me. Uh, I had many strong opinions uh, when I played, maybe stronger opinions when I was a broadcaster. Are you shocked that I'm not on TV now? <laughs> well, maybe maybe some that were too strong. Uh, just saying out loud, but uh, yeah, I think everybody, um, you know, we're, we're not silencing people. He has strong opinions. The Canadian government and their medical group and their science table has different opinions. And, uh, you know, the process is... You know, you you look at your wife going to Mm -hmm. China to cover the Olympics. You know, get her on. She's an expert in what she had to go through or is going to have to go through just to get in that country. And it it is extensive. It is far greater than any other Olympics. And, you know, I think about the NHL players, and I believe they, they made the right decision by not going. You know, to think that if you were to catch COVID, and it could happen. I mean, this this is a Petri dish that they're going into and they get it. What, what are you going to do for five weeks if you're quarantined? You're going to run on the spot like Jack Lane to stay in shape? They do burpees in your hotel? Like That's terrible. Nobody's worried about getting sick. Nobody, like I, I should clarify that. She's not worried about getting yeah. sick. I bet you when we talk to Bruce, he's not. But you are worried uh, uh, about the draconian measures. And you're yeah, right. Yeah. It's Glenn, you know this, and I think our audience does too. It's controversial enough to go to the Olympics in any year, in Salt yeah. Lake, in Vancouver, to ask business owners who sometimes lose money in a given year, when the Super Bowl ends and everybody turns their focus to hockey, can you guys shut your buildings for three weeks for us when nothing else is happening in the sporting world? It's a tough ask in the best of times, isn't yeah. it? Well, in Vancouver, um, at, at the time we did the Vancouver Olympics, I worked for the Players Association for, uh, be, before that, and we, we had a kind of a debrief in Toronto. You might have been at it. It was at one of the big hotels, mm-hmm. and, and basically talking about the challenges of Vancouver, which... Uh, Pretty good country. It's our country. Oh, it's it's in BC. Yeah, it's our country, and uh, just the challenges of you know players that were getting hurt in the Olympics and doctors were not allowed to see them from the NHL side, general managers and owners of team that weren't allowed in buildings. It just it, and no insurance for players. Players that got hurt and didn't get ins- like there was a whole host and chasm of issues that the NHL was faced with that Olympics in Vancouver. They addressed them, and let's face it, the the hockey in the Winter Olympics is the sport. You could argue downhill skiing. I would argue hockey. Mm-hmm. They draw the biggest revenue. Vancouver was somewhere near $90 million in ticket revenue. So looking forward, though, you know, this one is a little bit more contentious, and I think the players made the right call. But moving forward from this Olympics, you're looking at Italy for the next one, which, by the way, in the Olympics in Vancouver in 2010 – the number one European country to watch hockey in that Olympics, Italy, believe it or not. Wow. Not, Nor- not Norway, not Sweden, not Finland, Italy. So we'll go to Italy, and then the one following that will be Salt Lake City or Vancouver. So, you know, there are, there are days ahead. But I feel for Connor McDavid. If, if, if he can show me a picture of his Team North America sweater hung up in his basement, I'll be shocked. 
But if he gets a Team Canada one like like Iserman and Lemieux and Gretzky and plays best on base and it has a Canadian flag on the front, that will be hung up for sure right behind the bar. And so for not getting to play best on base, playing Team North America in the World Cup, uh, I don't think that jives him. And the World Juniors doesn't count in his mind at this point. I'm glad you said that because in 16, I went to some of those games in the fall. Um, I, I hated the format. I'm not going to lie. I hated Team Europe, what is that? You would never do this with with best on best in soccer, in uh, even even the World Baseball Classic in baseball. And I just thought it's such a ridiculous, gimmicky compromise. Um, and now here we are: Connor McDavid, Austin Matthews, Jack Eichel, all these players deep into their career, Glenn, and they've never played a best on best at all tournament. That's unbelievable. Yeah, and so uh, I'm sure that was one of the reasons that, uh, from a collective bargaining standpoint, that that was put into the collective bargaining agreement. And heartbreaking for, look, if a coach says it's heartbreaking, he's a coach. John Cooper, you read the names on back of sweaters. I wonder who I'm putting up next. (laughs) David, how about that? Wow, bad choice. That wasn't a good one. Just in case you're not aware, when Gretzky played with me, he changed himself. Like, there's no coach that ever changed him. When he stood up, oh, he's ready. Go. Okay. Except Robbie Fatorik, and then, and then his office was cleaned out the next day. That was it. Well, I mean, he was, Robbie was trying to teach him a lesson. Right? I know. And, but, but he did. He got Robbie a teaching job in New Haven <sighs> with the minors. Um, so that being said, uh, yeah, so it, it is heartbreaking for them. And uh, I, I hope that, uh, you know, their careers continue on and they get that chance. And they will. And they're uh, great players in every sense. And uh, But this one was very unique. This pandemic is unique. This is something no one has planned on. And quite frankly, when it first occurred, I looked at my staff at the office and said, take a week off. Take the week, and we'll get back here in a week and get to work. That was like 27 months ago. <laughs> now, now they're all on milk cartons. You haven't that seen was, them. That has been a hell of a week, I tell you. It was. One uh, long week. Jeez. Glenn Healy's the president executive director of the NHL AA. I want to talk about your uh, association with points bet in a bit. But, uh, yeah, I'm, I grew up in, and born in the late, early 70s, so I'm a Canada Cup kid. I don't have a, a link to 72, despite understanding the historic, international, political significance of all of it. And I, I just look and I go, like we're saying with the World Cup, it just makes sense. You, you know the inner workings of the NHLPA so well. Why wouldn't it behoove these players even to organize something for this fall? Won't it make money? Won't it be easy? It's on our own cost. It, it reduces travel. I know I know it's not the stage the Olympics is. I know that. But but again, to get something going best on best, we dropped the ball for what, from 04 to 16, we didn't have a, a, a tournament in the fall like it. Yeah, we had this this thing called work stoppages. Um, don't know if you've paid yes. attention to some of those, but uh, they, they tend to get in the way of constructive conversations with regards to collaborative agreements. And and those are behind, I think, the group now. I, I think everything is in place from a business standpoint, which, again, would lead me to the answer to your question, which is, you know, this is a business agreement that requires a ton of work to get countries in, to get to players, to, to, to get sorted, to get arenas available, to find out where you're going to play these games. You know, the World Cup, some, some of the games are played in Minnesota, some in Philly, mm-hmm. uh, some are played in Toronto. Like, where, where are you going to play them? The one thing about the World Cup that you probably found was that all the games were in the same arena. It just wasn't this flavor of, you know, we're kind of across the world or North America and the games are going to other places. Uh, so there is a lot of, of detail that goes into them. And I, I think they're just, you know, if you look at it, and I'll give the PA and the league great credit, mm-hmm. you know, 
the first year in the lockout, not the lockout, the pandemic, it's the same thing. It locked out the world. So it is a lockout for all of us. Um, that first year, the league lost a billion four. God. And that's a ton of money to recreate. And they found a way to, to have the games with a bubble, which wasn't ex- exciting and um, in any way sexy for the NHL players, living in a bubble away from your family for that long. They, they, they championed it, and I'll give them full marks. And then, you know, last year, I, you know, a lot of the games in front of 3,000 fans, you know, maybe that's okay for Arizona, but not for Montreal. Not the Bell Center on a Saturday no. night, I'm sorry. It's one no. of the best places to be. And so they found a way to get through that. And then now the Olympics, there's, there's big debate about whether you play or you don't play. Again, that's, that's a massive organization to get ready for it, to plan for it, to book jets to go, to figure out what the travel is all about, only to find all that work, thousands of hours, just washed away on one vote, a smart vote, but washed away. So there's a lot of planning, and it, I think both the PA and the league have been through so much. I think they've done a pretty good job to get hockey into Canadians' TVs. Um, maybe we get our butts in the seat soon, but I think they've done a good job. But this one takes a little bit more planning as well, and I, I think they all are looking at it and saying, let's get this crap behind us yeah. for real and not have another variant that begins with, what's the next one, begins with a P? I don't even know. I didn't even pay attention to Greek in school. So let's get rid of it, and when we do, then we can plan. What would be the Mardi Gras of an All-Star game? The Mardi Gras of a of a World Cup and and get fans back to where they belong, which is watching their favorite players and favorite teams. That's all. That's all we want. Uh, the NHL Alumni Association's hooked up with uh, points bet. You anybody that watches a game now, whether it's Leafs Coyotes last night, sees you know a slew of betting sites, uh, gambling ads, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Why was this one the right one for the NHL Alumni Association uh, to be involved in? Well, I think for a number of reasons. One, I think what we, what we try to do with the Alumni Association. Our mission statement is honor the past. And by, by doing on that, what we try to do every day with our staff at work is try to make tomorrow better than today. That's my job every day. Pretty simple. It's, that's everyone who works for the players with the alumni. Uh, they work for the players to make tomorrow better than today. And working with partnerships like PointsBet, that gives us that ability. And PointsBet gave us a couple things that were great for our partnership. One, the regulatory side. You know, they're not the guy with a trench coat on the corner selling two seats to a Leaf game, and you get there, and they say, no, these aren't even real tickets. Uh, I got duped. It's, it's regulated. It's authentic, and I think that's the most important part. I look at all of our partnerships as long-term, whether it's Upper Deck, which is number one in sports card, EA Sports, number one in video games, Wiser's number one in whiskey in the world. Like They're all gold standard partners. And I look at points bet as that. They're authentic. They're Canadian. They're coast to coast to coast. And what they're trying to do, their vision, which is mine, is take all of these players that played in small towns where they were heroes and try to create not just a, a gambling, but campaigns and philanthropic causes, whether it's Hockey Fights Cancer, and give back to communities. And when I heard those words and I heard that vision and I knew they were Canadian, I knew they were authentic, I knew they're not the biggest, and that didn't matter to me, but their vision aligned with what our vision was, which is to make a difference as players. Once you leave the game, you can't make a difference on the ice, but, boy, you can be a damn good ambassador. And this is a partner that is wearing our sweater now that helps us to make that difference. That's good. Yeah, that's uh, that's important for the alumni. I loved our chat today. Thanks very much for making the time for our audience, and, and hopefully we get to do it again. It's great to have you on the radio. Oh, good luck with Bruce. I look 
I, I mean, that's sound <laughs> you hear is me turning off the radio. I, not, gosh, that's not true. That's not no, accurate. I love him. He's a he's a gentleman and a gem, and he's he's the, one of the best. So we're we're, we're going to find a ton of common ground, as in we wish the Olympics weren't in China. I think that's the common ground that we'll uh, we'll uh, agree to sing "We Are the World" well, on. I think. Just in closing, when they're in Scotland, I'm bringing the pipe band. Okay. Yeah. Well, listen. When Great Britain's Great Britain's starting to make the World Championships over and over again, so maybe they're building some. You just we don't know. We like the uniforms, but uh, nobody wants to see. Yeah. Lose 20, no. 20 to nothing. Uh, like like ninety percent of the women's games, unfortunately, uh, when Canada and the USA play. Thanks for doing this, Glenn. I All appreciate right. it. Have a great one. Cheers, boys. Got it, Glenn. Ha- uh, Glenn Healy on the show uh, from the NHL Alumni Association. Very pleased to welcome in our guest columnist from the uh, Toronto Star. He is Bruce Arthur. Glenn Healy was on at the top of the hour and gave you one hell of a plug. If you didn't hear it. I, uh, Glenn Healy? That's surprising to me. Is it? <laughs> yes, I mean, he did. He did. He's... I know each other, but we're not like super close friends. What did Glenn say? Uh, Glenn was, uh, you know, he made a joke about turning off the radio. And I said, Glenn, people might have done that during your segment. I didn't say that to him. He's just very, I think he likes our, uh, you know, he said, uh, nobody's better than you. That's what he said. I don't know if he was winking, but I, I can't see him. It wasn't a Zoom call. Uh, with Glenn, you always have to see him you know, in person to even have an idea as to whether or not he's being sarcastic. The odds are not. Low. It is true. It's true. Now I've got more. Uh, I've got more uh, viewer mail because uh, we get letters. Do you ever get emails from uh, readers, uh, Bruce? Do you ever? <laughs> <laughs> do I ever, Greg? I, I bet you do. So I get this one. I I love reading Bruce and the Toronto Star, and love that you guys do a weekly segment together. You guys want the same things, like-minded family guys. I'm like, how does he know that about me? Bruce, yes. Bruce thinks the spread of Omicron can be contained. You think it's less possible than he does. I agree with many of both your points, but I'm always entertained and tell Bruce that. I like that. That's good. I don't actually think Omicron can be contained as much as slowed down. Like contained is we've kind of we've passed that now. There's too much of it. It is possible. This is actually the best news that you could probably get. Hmm. It is. There are very smart people who think it's possible. We are peaking in, in daily infections sometime this week. Now, think about that for a second. We didn't get Omicron cases until late November, early December, and they are now at an absolute peak. This thing is a monster now. But the thing is, you can slow it down. And I think if you look at mobility data and if you look at what's happening, hopefully, hopefully with hospital admissions, we might be slowing down a little bit. So I don't think we disagree as much there. No. Did did um, if, if someone asked me this, they said if we had, you know, endless hospital capacity, if we had, let's say, 1500 ICU beds. Would, mm-hmm. would we have treated all this differently? Because I think you and I also agree that individual risk to people like you and me who've had three vaccinations, people certainly younger than us, certainly also our kids, and we'll get to schools, there's less individual risk than there may have been eight months ago, ten months ago when none of us were vaccinated. But this is about if, – if the hospital capacity, Bruce, was double what it was, would we have taken any of these measures? Well, remember, in the third wave, we had 900 people in ICU, and I was told at the time hundreds of people – who were ICU-worthy but on the wards, and a lot of people died. So if you say 1,500, you would have needed more. Like that, we would have hit the absolute, had hit the top of our hospital capacity, but then the problem is this. The government would have pushed further, and that's there's like a dynamic there is the governments play to their hospital capacity as they are. And the problem with the idea of, let's say we did have endless hospital capacity, 
we will always have an ICU bed, always have an ICU doctor, always have an ICU nurse all the way up and down the hospital for all the levels of, of care. Even then, the problem you get with unleashing this on a societal basis is there will be an enormous amount of suffering and death, mm-hmm. and it's not about choice. It's not about individual choice because what you're saying to people who are immunocompromised, who are older, who are unvaccinated as we get closer, you guys, you stay home indefinitely, essentially. And that's the problem is that this thing attacks the vulnerable in society. Take a look at which neighborhoods in Toronto it's hit the hardest. It has hit neighborhoods which are poor and primarily racialized with new Canadians. Um, it would have been. It wouldn't have been fair to absolutely let this thing roll. Right. Um, I understand it from a majoritarian point of view, but I think in a society we have to kind of look at it a little differently. And the fact was, not only is Ontario a low hospital bed jurisdiction in the context of the world, it's a low hospital bed jurisdiction in the, in the context of Canada. And so again, you play to your hospital capacity. It would have been really, really ugly if we had played to that maximal hospital capacity. We would have lost a lot of people. I see that. Yeah, yeah. Bruce Arthur, uh, Toronto Star, our guest. Um, when you watch, when you watch sports, we got six amazing NFL playoff games this weekend. George Alabama was great Monday night. Even something as you know pedestrian as an NHL regular season game. How do you how do you feel watching those? Like, do they have it so so wrong? You know, we've talked about this before. I don't want us to be Florida. I don't want us to be Texas. But do they have some things right that we don't have right in terms of being open? I mean, it depends situation to situation. But mostly, when I watch the United States, I see a country that doesn't particularly care about this, and which has had three times our death rate. So. Uh, that that is the essential calculus you're making here. The other thing is, take a look at the stories that are starting to come out of U.S. hospitals. Uh, we are going to push our hospitals pretty hard here, and I hope I hope we don't really really blow them. Um, I think the United States is in danger of a worse hospital fate in this wave again, and we're just going to find out. So. During Delta, with a high level of vaccination and a vaccination passport, you could absolutely argue that you could open things up more widely. Ontario never put in a vaccination passport that was anything close to watertight. It was, and then once you add in the United States, let's say that in that we would have had the death rate of the United States, which is between three and four times ours. You're talking about ninety thousand dead Canadians. You're talking about one hundred and twenty thousand dead Canadians. Um, it just it's a quantifiable difference. So, I mean, you can talk about societal priorities, but in terms of Omicron, the thing that might save the United States is a ton of people have been infected, but that still means a ton of people are going to go to hospital. They got military in the hospitals in some states right now. Yeah, they do. Yeah. the, the What I'm seeing in pediatric hospitals uh, and, and some of the da- data there, and I want to go to that with schools and vaccinations and kids, to me is, is really encouraging. I don't like seeing, obviously, we all have a moral uh, you know, justification and reason to, to make sure that kids aren't in hospitals, but, but the numbers are are stark we're talking unvaccinated kids it's something to the extent of three in one million uh pediatric hospital three in one million i should say are in are in hospital with covid19 and that's not even mm-hmm. to to parse the with or because i think that's i think that's encouraging uh to parents i think that is that's a light at the end of the tunnel um is it not 
I mean, it should be. One of the blessings of this disease is that kids have been largely spared from it. That's been one of the absolute best, most wonderful parts of a really, really lousy pandemic. But I will say this, we need to be a little bit careful. So Omicron is not the same. If you look, you talk to virologists, it is a different disease. And New York actually put out a really interesting uh, report on hospitalizations, basically from the beginning of December to the end of, to the start of January. And if you look at the hospital admission rates by age, I've got it right in front of me. Mm-hmm. Um, so as the, as the, as it goes on, all of the categories go up, right? Because Omicron starts to really soak through New York. So it's 65 plus, it goes up 187%. That's a lot. In 19 to 64, it goes up 241%. That's a lot. In 12 to 18, this is where it goes up the most, 1,000%. And then in 5 to 11, again, this is relative rates. It's not total. Relative rates went up 335%, and 0 to 4-year-olds went up 791%. So if you look relatively, the unvaccinated kids are a problem. Yeah. Yeah. And so but that's where when we when we're putting kids back in school and daycares in the coming days, that's where the five to 11s and the zero to fours are a different story than your 12 to 18s. But also, of course, with a different risk profile, because 12 to 18s are more vulnerable. It is we're not 100 percent sure on Omicron yet. I still think that part of hospital admissions for kids is a huge number of just volume. There's just a ton of this stuff around. Um, but that said, those New York numbers, they were not comforting. And that was sent to me by someone who has been a proponent of schools being open. Mm. And they said the, the way they put it was, that's not a number that you really like looking at. Bruce Arthur, Toronto Star guest on Toronto Today. What did you make of the uh, comment uh, by Kieran Moore about the quote-unquote new vaccine? He mentioned the word new rollout, the phrase new rollout. I didn't have a problem with that because that's that's accurate. But um, we're still at, at the point where half of kids aren't vaccinated. And there's been ample opportunity. We're going on closer to 10, 11 weeks now of uh, of having at least that option for one dose. And one is a ton better than zero. There's more of a jump from zero to one in terms of efficacy and protection than there is one to two. Um, what did you make of the comments and the walk back later in the daytime? Well, the thing with, I, I think Kieran Moore is a smart guy. I do. I think he knows that of all, like, what is it, like 7 million uh, vaccinations have been given out to 5 to 11-year-olds. There have been very, 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 very few serious reactions. Like, it's been, on, on the whole, unbelievably safe. I don't know if he, I think maybe he grasped how much damage he did to his, to his reputation with that one statement. And the thing is, it's not a crazy statement on its face if you parse it and, cut and put it in the right context. No. The original trial on 5 to 11 was like two to 3,000 kids. It was not a huge number, and they said it in the study. Um, the fact that we've now given the vaccine to an enormous number of people is much more reassuring. But it's like what he should have said is, look, I understand some parents haven't been willing to get their kids vaccinated because they want to wait. I understand that. We will work to educate you. This is a safe vaccine. It is great for our kids. And here's the other thing, like in terms of kids and this disease, the absolute number has been really low. But if you look at like even in the United States, late last year in the United States, COVID was a top 10 source of death for like kids who are under 14. Like kids aren't supposed to die. They are not supposed to die young. 
And so when you talk about the vaccine, the vaccine is still a helpful thing to give your kids. It, there are, again, vanishingly few serious implications. And this is what Moore should have said. Instead, he said it's too new. And it left a lot of things open to interpretation. He tried to clean it up. That actually wasn't the thing that made me maddest about yesterday. That wasn't even the maddest thing that made me maddest about in terms of the stuff they had to clean up. But it was an enormous piece of damage to his reputation, I think, for a lot of people. Because you cannot communicate like that around pediatric vaccines. It felt like a more of a political communication than a medical communication. Um, and we can't be having that. That's not what he's supposed to do. That's not what he's yeah. supposed to do. Um, what made you maddest? Okay, so the plan was, as, we, as, as, they, as they decided on it, and they had a month to decide on this, that we will not call parents in, in, and tell them that there's an outbreak in the class or in your school until 30% of the school is absent for any reason. 30% of a school. So in a 1,000 kids school, 300 people need to be missing, not 299, not 298, before they will tell you that, yeah, there's probably COVID in your kid's school. Like, that was an unbelievable plan. And I understand. They said it, it's because the limits of testing. And I understand that. This province had huge problems ramping up testing. They were at 75,000 as an upper, upper limit capacity when Omicron started. Tried to push to 100. They have not come close. That, that, was, an, that was basically a recipe for exposing every kid in this province to COVID as fast as you can. Because public health people will tell you. You get to 30% absenteeism on a symptom basis. If that would, if let's say all those absentees were COVID, that means everyone's been infected. Or not infected, rather. Because a ton everyone's of kids, you're infected, right, because right? a ton of kids will never have symptoms or will have very exactly. minimal symptoms and parents won't even think to test until they, exactly. until they, it's way, way, way too high a threshold. When I said in early December, we got to reframe cases, we got to reframe what closes the school, we got to reframe what an outbreak is. 30 percent is not what I had in mind. I don't think it's what anybody had in mind. <laughs> well, and that's the thing is we we should have kids back in school. It is better for them. But if you if you're going to prioritize school, prioritize school as a societal issue. And this government's never done that. And what they went with here is, well, this is the best we can do. Here's two rapid tests each, which will last you exactly one cold. This was a bad plan. I understand wanting to get kids back in school, and you can make a lot of different arguments about a lot of different harms, balancing risks, all those things. They talked about empowering parents. They used that over and over. These two rapid tests will empower you. That is garbage. Not really. No, no. Yeah. Like, if you want to empower, and then they're going to say, okay, they changed it late in the day. They said, okay, now you can, we will tell you what the absences are. We'll keep it on a website. They're not going to actively tell parents, but on the website, you can see how many people are missing in your school. In Ottawa, Vera Etche said parents will learn by word of mouth. This, <laughs> I just don't think this is good enough. I know. Right? I know. I wanted, I wanted a, a middle ground between, between two fully vaccinated asymptomatic cases shuts down a school of $1,500, uh, 1500 kids. And this, that's not a middle ground. I 100% agree with you. It is, and again, they had a long time to do this. Yeah, they, yeah. The last time kids were in school was December 17th, and they walked out there, and this was their marvelous plan. And that just, how much confidence does that give you in the people who are running the pandemic response, man? And the number one thread lines through all of the stuff. Hmm. Ontario has gotten away probably easier than it could have, despite all the suffering that we've seen. There are other jurisdictions who have done worse. The people of Ontario have been phenomenal 
and the medical community has been phenomenal. And the government, the through line of incompetence through decision making has been remarkable. Well, you're asking a lot for 27 days of preparation. I mean, the Super Bowl halftime show takes like days. The, for the weekend to walk through that maze, that, t- that took months to, to clarify. We got to leave China, which is probably best because I don't want to raise your blood pressure or mine. So we'll, we, you probably got one show left until you go. So we'll talk about it next week. It will not be fun, Brady. I know. That's, that's the Olympic slogan for uh, 2022. <laughs> it will not be fun, the uh, Winter Olympics. Thanks, Bruce. You bet, Brady. Bruce Arthur, Toronto Star, our guest. Thanks, as always, for listening to Toronto Today. We'll be back with a live show tomorrow to wrap your week, as a matter of fact, between 5.30 and 9 a.m. on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Thank you so much for listening, downloading, subscribing. We greatly appreciate it.